Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall. We're tasting all the time when it comes to beer and our drinking experiences, but there's always a chance to become better, to go deeper, and to layer in more thought. Mandy Naglish is here. She's the author of the new book, How to Taste, and she's going to guide us on our tasting journey. We'll get into the show in just a moment, but first, Caleb Schwecki of Yakima Valley Hops is here. The company is a sponsor of this episode. We're thankful for that. And we're talking about newly released hop varieties. Caleb, welcome back. And there's always an excitement when new hops show up in beers. So first off, let's talk about McKenzie. And can you tell us what it does for different styles and as well as the flavors and the aromas that we should be looking out for when we have McKenzie hops in our beers? So McKenzie is a, a newly released variety uh, by the West Coast Breeding Company, and they're out of Oregon. So McKenzie was bred specifically for the Oregon climate and that terroir. So it's really, it's a fun hop for that reason, because it's kind of a local variety that's leaning into some local Oregon uh, climates. But I really like it because it is kind of reminiscent of like those old school classic American hops like Chinook, Centennial, maybe even Cascade, like Ooh. a super Cascade type situation. Okay. But, um, it, you know, it, it just offers up really good grapefruit and citrus, a little bit of pine and resin in the background. So it's perfect for like a West Coast IPA, but there's enough fruit character to it that really lends itself to these more fruit forward styles. That's really cool. Um, and it's, it's becoming more and more available. It is. Uh, the acreage is, you know, expanding on it this year, which is good because the brewers who have gotten to try McKenzie have really liked it. You know, they've they've been brewing a wide range of styles with it. I personally see it fitting well into kind of like that cold IPA, maybe like classic West Coast IPA, classic American pale ale style. But there's also been brewers, you know, brewing uh, fruited hazies and sours and all sorts of stuff with it. So it's an exciting hop and really versatile. So I'm kind of curious to see where it really lands as, you know, where it finds its home. It'll be fun to see the experimentation, but I also would love to see more West Coast IPAs. So um, get to it, brewers. Uh Caleb, thanks so much. You're going to be back with me at the bottom of the show, and we're going to talk more about another newly released hop, Australian Eclipse. And in the meantime, I'm going to encourage everyone to go visit yakimavalleyhops.com. There you can learn more about these hops and everything else that the company has to offer. And as always, thanks to Yakima Valley Hops for supporting All About Beer. If you plan to be in Colorado in a few weeks for the Great American Beer Festival, you need to check out the Denver Rare Beer Tasting. It happens on September 22nd and brings together 64 of America's best craft breweries, all for a great cause, the Pints for Prostates campaign. The beer list is incredible, packed with rare, exotic, and vintage beers you won't find anywhere else. These are legendary beers the breweries hold back just for the Denver Rare Beer Tasting. This is a bucket list event for both beer fans and for brewers, and you can get a look at the beer list and find more information at pintsforprostates.org. All-inclusive tickets are just $200 and include unlimited beer samples, a great buffet lunch, t-shirt, tasting glass, and a program. Money raised goes to the fight against prostate cancer, including a free health screening before the event. It's just a simple blood test that checks for common health issues that might just save your life. That's the Denver Rare Beer Tasting, drinking beer and saving lives. 
Don't forget, please go visit allaboutbeer.com for original articles, reviews, news, insights, and podcasts. You can listen to shows like Beer Travelers, Brewer to Brewer, and the All About Beer podcast simply by searching All About Beer wherever you listen to shows. This show and all of the work we do, it's supported by you. You can go visit patreon.com slash allaboutbeer to help keep the content fresh. A few bucks goes a long way to fund writers, photographers, creators, and editors. And if you'd like to learn more about advertising on this show, please email info at allaboutbeer.com. There are several books that exist to help us understand our brains and our senses when it comes to tasting. And now there's a new one to add to your shelf. How to Taste, a guide to discovering flavor and savoring life by Mandy Naglish was released a few weeks ago. And it's a fun, conversational and thought-provoking book that is worthy of your time and attention. Naglish is a, an advanced Cicerone certified taster and a journalist. As a certified cider professional, and after completing all levels of the We Set Spirits, Mandy began to teach both consumers and professionals about flavor and service across the beverage alcohol category. Her widely popular tasting classes sell out around the city, that's New York City, by the way, as well as virtually, and Mandy uses her experiences tasting and studying beverages to report for outlets like Vice, Taste of Home, Vine Pair, and Wine Enthusiast. Her fans can also follow along her adventures around the world on her popular blog at Drinks with Mandy. This new book goes beyond just beer, and that's all to our benefit. Here's our conversation. What does it mean to be a certified taster? Great question. It's definitely something that comes up a lot. Um, Really, I'm basing it off of two different certifications I have. One is through Aroxa that a lot of people in the beer world might be familiar with, where you literally get a certificate that on it says certified beer taster. <laughs> um, yep. So that's basically a, a week-long um, certification process of doing a lot of training on different compounds until at the end you can pass the certification test and they actually test you throughout, which is really nice. I only missed one cup the whole uh, process, which I still feel proud about. And then the other one is from the Cheese Academy, which same thing, it's a certification. Um, they're based in England, but a certification based on cheese tasting. So I have those two. And rather than list everything out, I think just cutting it down to certified taster works pretty well to get the point across and uh, also leads to questions like that. So um, yeah. And a Cicerone certification as well, which is... Yes, advanced Cicerone. Advanced Cicerone. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I, I always forget the various levels that uh, that Ray came up with years ago. But um, yeah. but there's obviously a tasting component in that as well, along with the general knowledge that comes with flavor and process and understanding. Definitely. Um, Pretty intense. I, to get to a point where you say, okay, I'm going to take some classes or I'm going to aim for certifications or uh, I'm going to make this part of my professional career. There's usually a moment or a series of moments um, that starts somebody on that path. Do you remember what it was for you early on when you discovered flavor beyond just drinking something or eating something and enjoying it, but realizing that there was a deeper deeper level to what you were experiencing? Uh, absolutely. I mean, for me, it was definitely homebrewing. Uh, I 
when you start first start homebrewing, you're kind of like following recipes and you're just getting to know the different styles and learning, you know, how to make beer that you like. But as I really got into it, I learned so much about fermentation and the different yeast strains and how they kind of steer the flavor of your final beer. And I started getting really obsessed with trying to clone um, commercial examples of beer and try to make them exactly the same by studying flavor. And uh, in 2016, when I won a gold at the National Homebrew Competition, kind of out of nowhere, it was the first homebrew competition I'd ever entered. Um, that's when I got a lot of attention from the Cicerone program reached out to me as well as Vine Pair. Um, and I started really learning that there was ways to train my palate and flavor through getting certifications and things like that, rather than just my own self-study. But I would definitely say learning about fermentation and homebrewing was where I learned how flavor is created and how you can hone that process. Was there, were there recipes that stick out in your mind? I, I, I like for, I guess I'm looking for like tangible examples of, mm-hmm. you know, wow, that did that. And this is kind of like, was there yeah, something? I would, yeah. I would definitely say, so when I was first getting into homebrewing, this was like in 2014, probably. So it was very like American pale ale, American brown ale. And I remember the first time I ever used Belgian yeast. Um, I first of all, didn't know what I was doing. So it was like kind of phenolic band-aid crazy, but just all this flavor came out, you know, it was your wort almost tastes exactly the same when you're um, making it, you know, it's like that malt forward, very sugary. And then you put this yeast in and it created all of these crazy flavors. And definitely the first time I used, there's a yeast called 3711. Uh, it's a Cezanne yeast. Um, that's like that really dry French Cezanne. And I just remember being like, okay, it, it, it's, it feels like magic when you're making it the first time, you know, you put in this like sugary um, word and it turns into this, all these flavors all over the place and then learning how to properly, um, you know, use the temperatures and everything to make Belgian yeast express the flavors that you want was really eye-opening and exciting to me. And then of course I wanted to go to Belgium, (laughs) um, try everything there. So I was kind of getting into it at that height of everyone really appreciating Belgian beer and that being, um, the most popular thing, I guess, in the craft beer, uh, geek, uh, world, it was pre hazy IPA and even really big, bitter IPA days. It's interesting to to think back even, you know, just a decade ago, less than a decade ago of the beers that you were just describing, pale ale, brown ale, uh, doing, you know, not simple Belgian recipes, but ones where the core ingredients of beer were responsible for the true flavors, responsible for you know, the, the, this this depth of wonder uh, that we could get out of each sip. And and these days, uh, I now sound like the old man in the room of you know <laughs> now kids are putting candy in their beer and there you know there's all sorts of things that um, you know that <laughs> that are being being added to beer. But um, I wonder when it comes to taste how important those building blocks are of having simple recipes, simple flavors, not just in beer, but in, you know, in, in, in other, uh, other arenas as well, where it's non adjuncted so that you can understand what it is that you're tasting. Is that necessary still? 
Um, that's a great question. I mean, it's definitely something that I find fascinating when you can get down to your natural ingredients and see, you know, on the spectrum of bread dough to burnt bread, where does your malt fall and kind of pick apart the four core ingredients of beer via flavor. Um, I don't know if, if it's necess- a necessary skill. I think it's something that a lot of brewers, I just was lucky enough to go have an event up at Allagash and get to spend some time with their sensory team. Um, and they're very... Uh, forward on tasting everyone's getting trained on sensory uh, all the compounds as well as the different spectrums of flavor from the four core ingredients in beer and I think that's a reason they put out great beer but um, yeah I don't I guess I don't know as a commercial brewer what it would be necessary if you would need to be able to pick those things out or not or just know your hops really well if all you're doing is making really hop forward beers Um, Hops come with a lot of great tasting notes now and their flavor notes and things like that. So someone has to be trained in sensory to be able to explain those. But I don't know if it's as necessary as it used to be or as um, at the forefront of everyone's mind as it used to be, you know, being able to taste those really simple building blocks of beer like they um, that used to be very popular, I guess, in the industry. Yeah, I I wasn't even so much thinking about um, professionals as much as maybe just regular drinkers um and you know folks folks who are out in the world i i I guess when in reading your book i was sort of thinking about those very early days of taste right when Mm -hmm. you get a juice box and it says apple on the outside and it gives us the idea of what an apple should taste like you know um Mm -hmm. or um uh, you know, Jolly Ranchers, which kind of skew our mind of what watermelon or grape tastes like versus what the actual fruits taste like, that kind of thing of how early on we're sort of guided by what other folks or, you know, manufacturers are telling us what something should taste like as opposed to sort of experiencing it for ourselves. And that, that's what I'm sort of thinking about with the Belgian blocks, uh, or I'm sorry, the building blocks of going back to, um, the beginning of trying to learn each individual ingredient uh, and what they do alone and, and and together, if that's, if that's important or if that's just not going to be for everybody. Definitely. I think, I mean, if you're ever recipe writing or um, cooking or anything like that, um, I think being able to know the building blocks of your recipe is really important. Something I get into in the book, talking to chefs is about, how they say when they're a young chef, they used to, you know, use a ton of ingredients and make these really complex dishes. And then as they kind of mature in their career, they start cutting back and you only want to include the ingredients on the plate that create just the flavor you want. You don't need to go overboard. You don't need to overcomplicate things. And I think that's a journey a lot of home cooks, a lot of home brewers will follow as well. You're excited, you're using all these flavors and then kind of learning how using the most minimal building blocks possible to create what you need is ideal keeps things simple. Um, also today keeps things cheaper. I just, um, ordered ingredients to homebrew and I was like, wow, things are getting expensive. I speak about sounding like an old man. I feel like I'm like, it used to cost me $50 to brew a beer and now it costs a hundred. So, um, yeah, I think that's an expensive pale ale. Yeah. Uh, we're making a saison, but uh yeah. okay all right that's um, that's that's a good amount of money for a saison I'll, I'll i'll go along with that um sorry go ahead oh no i just i i think the reason that the reason i decided to go forward and like write this book which is not a, a beer focused you know tasting book it's about tasting everything it's just yeah. i think people appreciating their senses more generally in life leads 
it definitely made my life a lot more colorful and interesting. And I feel that I make a lot more connections um, when I'm traveling, when I'm doing anything, because I'm so in tune with my senses of taste and smell. And I think it's, it's a pretty easy thing to do. And it's also quite fun. So I think more people uh, should do it and they would enjoy it. Obviously, it's a beer show, and I know I've been focusing on beer, but I have <clears throat> enjoyed in reading this book um, seeing your approach to like food items. There's a there's a great um, chart at some point in the book uh, where you're talking about cheese and olive oil and 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 lots of other ingredients and the ideal serving temperature um, uh, or tasting temperature uh, for them, which. Um, is is I, I think about food a lot and and drink a lot and have written extensively on both, um, and it's something that I kind of forget to keep coming back to. And it was it, reading this was a really nice reminder of that. Um, talk about that a little bit, if you would, of why temperature matters when it comes to tasting. Yeah, I mean, definitely if we're investing in things like you know your artisan cheeses straight from the farm or really high-end chocolates um we want to get the most flavor possible out of them and so much of flavor has to do with both the temperature of what we're tasting and the environment around it so um as things get further from our body temperature they're harder for us to taste so things that are very very hot or very very cold basically they're going to taste less sweet and less bitter um, just because of the way that our taste receptors work so thinking of the ideal the ideal temperature for something like coffee where you're getting the full um spectrum of its flavors uh but it's not so hot that you can't taste anything or so iced down that you can't taste anything uh is really important and then then there's just the simple chemistry of when something's warm its molecules are very excited so they're very easy to fly off the taste and so you want your cheese to be at room temperature because it's just easier to perceive all of those flavor molecules you know get them up your nose to that olfactory bulb where you can really sense all of the flavors um Whereas when it's cold, it's really clinging on to those molecules. Um, they're low energy. They're really close to the surface of your cheese and they're not as open and easy to taste. That's, you know, people will say they drink a beer over the span of 30 minutes because they want to go from that original cold serving temperature and then feel the flavors open up. And what's really opening up is those molecules are just a little less, they're a little looser to the surface of the beer, ready to be experienced uh, a little bit more as things are warming and they're flying around a little faster. So back to back to your um, high school science classes with energy uh, coming in and letting those molecules be more ready to be tasted. What do you think is the percentage of folks? I mean, it, it's so interesting when you talk about, I mean, that's the way that I sometimes drink beer. Sometimes I'm just drinking it straight through, but um, letting flavors open up or thinking about temperature or, you know, versus, I think a lot of the culture these days or, you know, part of it is um, you know, grabbing something quick. Uh, I have a six-year-old now, so it's um, it's often, you know, getting dinner on the table as fast as possible um, or, you know, st standing, eating in the kitchen uh, after she's gone to bed or things like that. And I'm not necessarily, it's, it's fuel, not necessarily um, the experience. Mm -hmm. How many people do you think are are thinking about taste? regularly 
Yeah. I I mean, probably not many. I also eat a lot of dinner standing up, Um, but I think it just takes like a second to sit. Like last night I, there was steaks on sale at Whole Foods. So it was a big day for us, but um, you know, I charted it a little bit differently and I was just like, Oh, I'm going to take just a second to like, see, do I really want this like thick charred crust on the outside of the steak? Uh, And just taking a minute to think about the flavor also gives you just a quick second to compare it to basically every other steak you've eaten and all those memories you have and just add something to your sensory memory. I don't think, like I said, I was standing while I was doing this. You don't, I don't think it needs to be this huge, you know, you're, you're making sure there's no sound. You're looking at a white wall. You're making it a big deal. It's just something that tuning into your senses and comparing all the tastes throughout your life. Um, adds just a little bit of depth and also helps you to appreciate, you know, I spent quite a bit of time. I had to go up to the roof to sear the steak on the grill. Um, so just appreciating what you're taking in if you can. Um, it's funny, like we're talking about the the correct serving temperature and things like that. And I'm just kind of on a personal mission to get people to stop drinking beer out of cans and bottles. So small, small steps, you know, if they can at least get the aroma, then we'll start worrying about the temperature of the beer that they're drinking. Um, I have, I've, I've evolved and devolved and evolved and devolved on that as well. (laughs) Um, um, It used to be, you know, my beer comes in a glass. Why do I need to put it in a glass kind of thing? And then it was obviously experiencing the aroma. And when I'm doing tastings, obviously everything's in a glass. Um, But if I'm sitting in a backyard these days, um, including my own, where I have endless glassware (laughs) options, I'm probably drinking out of a can. What, no. what, what am I doing wrong? Why, why is that? Why is that wrong, Mandy? Well, so up to, I mean, some scientists will say up to 90%, but the kind of consensus is it's around 80% of what we consider flavor is coming from aroma. So basically taste is just going to be your five basic tastes. So what you're tasting in a beer is your bitterness. Maybe some things are sour, maybe you have a little bit of sweetness, um, but you're not getting a whole lot other taste wise from beer. So all the rest of the color, you know, the things that are your tropical aromas from hops, your uh, spicy aromas from yeast, any of that is being filled in by your aroma receptors. So you can get aroma up the back of your throat um, to that olfactory bulb. So if you're drinking out of the can, that's kind of where you're getting any of those other flavor elements. But if you can, you want to be getting it as much aroma as you can. So you're filling in all of the flavor and really appreciating what the brewer worked hard to curate into that can that you then pour out and uh, get the full experience with. So basically a can is like perfectly shaped to block your nose from getting any aroma as you're drinking. Whereas a glass, you can't help but get uh, a little, a little bit of aroma every sip you take. Yeah. But what if I want, you know, if I'm drinking a, a lawnmower beer, right. And I, <laughs> I want to smell that fresh cut grass instead of the, uh, the triple hops brewed. I mean, you can definitely get both. Uh, you can definitely, every time you put down your glass, you can take in the aroma of your environment, which is something I encourage in the book is take, you know, first thing before you drink or eat anything is just like, notice what's around you. Um, yes. I just did is, a fun. Yeah. Go know, ahead. No, 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 please. You know, I just you did, did a fun, fun tasting um, with M from Pints and Panels. Uh, we did a and tasting And the All together. About Beer podcast. Yes. Oh yes, of course. Um, in a bookstore. And we were joking like, you're never going to taste a beer again like this because you're getting all of the books around you as part of your environment. Uh, so definitely you can enjoy both. You can enjoy the smell of a nice fresh book as you're enjoying. At the time, we had a Sam Summer Ale that we were tasting. Give me the books. Um, <laughs> the 
I, I, I really enjoyed that chapter in the book on location and surrounding uh, what's around you. And you obviously hang out at fancier places than I do, because I don't know if I've ever thought about floral arrangements at a restaurant when I've gone out. Like I've probably noticed them or if they're overpowering. Um, is it lilies or lilacs that you you mentioned in the book? I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm drawing a blank was, at this point, but yeah. It was lilies and it, it was because my florist friend was like, I can't believe this restaurant has lilies. That's so crazy. They're so strong and intense. And I was like, okay, I got to go. I got to go try it out. So, <laughs> um, Obviously, I've railed against breweries that have or tap rooms or bars that have popcorn machines um, because I don't want to smell diacetyl um, when... You know, I'm drinking beer, uh, artificial or not. Um, mm-hmm. But but how 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 important or how much should one you know, breweries or tap rooms or restaurants be thinking about their ambient aroma? Um, and then, two from the consumer standpoint, what should we be thinking about? Yeah, I think the research was it was really fun to dive into this because ambient aromas can immediately, you know, trigger memories in your brain. So if you walk in somewhere and it's a Moroccan restaurant, but all you smell for some reason is yuzu, you're kind of like, wait, am I in the wrong place? You can start kind of feeling that discomfort. Whereas if you want to make someone feel comfortable, you want it to smell the way that they would expect. So, I mean, there's nothing better than going to a brewery that smells like brew day. You know, you get like that kind of cereal in the background. I love that. Um, Yeah, same. But uh, if, if nothing else, you want it to just be pretty neutral for everyone to enjoy their taste. Um, but it's more than just like the ambient scent as well. Like things like music are really going to affect what you're tasting. You know, it's fun to have like a really lively um, environment. But if you want people to appreciate your beer the most, uh, you kind of want it to be a little bit calmer as far as music and a little bit quieter just because our taste signals literally travel from our tongues through our ears to our brain um, on the chord of timpani nerve. So if that nerve is getting really jostled by like a huge baseline, it's going to be jostling those taste signals as well and dulling them by the time they reach your brain. And so they might not be appreciating the full um, flavor and really getting uh, everything out of your beers and that's at your establishment, you know, so you want them to be getting the best they can when you're, when they're in your, in your home. Um, what do you find the most egregious? <laughs> um, the thing that I think beer anywhere, really, really strong hand soap in the bathroom. I find like yeah. absolutely insane. <laughs> um, like if I come back from the bathroom and I'm holding my beer glass and all I can smell is my hand. I'm like, what? I just can't believe more people. Yeah, exactly. More people haven't caught on. Like I really like there's restaurants that you go to that they'll be like, this is our, you know, scentless hand soap for while you're eating. And this is your scented hand soap for when you're done with dinner. And I I just think you go to fancier places than I do. I don't know if I've (laughs) ever been to a place that offers me a soap menu, but yes. I mean, I gotta say, you're lucky to live in New York City, but can't can't go out that often because they are pricey. But um, yeah, I am thinking of Labernadan, honestly. That's the first time I saw that, and I was like, yes, this they're really thinking of everything. Um, but yeah, it needs to be a little bit subtler or scentless, in my opinion, um, because it just it will really stick around on your hands for a while. And to me, that really bothers me. Um, other people might not notice it, but they're also getting that aroma when they're drinking or eating whatever they're there to they're there to taste your beer, not smell their hand soap. So that's the most egregious to me. (laughs) 
Um, yeah, it's I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. I know at Great American Beer Festival and and some of the other judging uh, that's out there, the unscented hand soap is a is, is a long way because um, not washing your hands is not an option. Uh, exactly. I want to throw that out there to folks. More in a moment, but first, a note from this episode's sponsors. Looking for an easy hop sourcing experience? Yakima Valley Hops offers the finest quality hops from right here in our valley and premium growing regions around the world. Get the hops you need when you need them with ultra-fast shipping and awesome customer service. With a full line of liquid hop products and all your favorite varieties, no contracts are needed to brew with the best. Shop now at yakimavalleyhops.com. That's Y-A-K-I-M-A, valleyhops.com. If you plan to be in Colorado in a few weeks for the Great American Beer Festival, you need to check out the Denver Rare Beer Tasting. It happens on Friday, September 22nd and brings together 64 of America's best craft breweries, all for a great cause, the Pints for Prostates campaign. The beer list is incredible packed with rare, exotic, and vintage beers you won't find anywhere else. These are legendary beers the breweries hold back just for the Denver Rare Beer Tasting. This is a bucket list event for both beer fans and for brewers. You can get a look at the beer list and find more information at pintsforprostates.org. All-inclusive tickets are just $200 and include unlimited beer samples, a great buffet lunch, t-shirt, tasting glass, and program. Money raised goes to the fight against prostate cancer, including a free health screening before the event. It's a simple blood test that checks for common health issues that might just save your life. That's the Denver Rare Beer Tasting, drinking beer and saving lives. We'll see you there on September 22nd. And now back to the conversation. In thinking about judging and thinking about blind tasting, um, mm-hmm. not knowing what you're what what you're getting into, um, is that again not everybody's going to become a judge, not everybody's going to become a critic, um, um, but I think it does make us stronger eaters and drinkers if we can sort of trust our own instincts or be curious as opposed to you know somebody giving us a juice box and says oh this is tangerine mango and we say okay that's tangerine mango um as opposed to trying to you know, suss it out ourselves mm-hmm. is is blind tasting something that i don't know ordinary non-judge folks should do i don't want to call people ordinary that, that that's, that's <laughs> rude like but just you know yeah. folks who, who aren't doing this professionally but um is there a benefit to that curiosity of blind tasting? Yeah. And I don't think we have to go so formal to even call it like blind tasting. But one of the things I suggest in a chapter when I was saying about like getting familiar with flavor and more confident about calling different flavors and, you know, putting words to what you taste uh, is just having someone that you're out with, like order each other, you order each other drinks, don't tell each other what's in them and just see you know, what you taste. Um, I think things like cocktails are really fun because they usually have a lot of ingredients. So you can kind of at least get one of many ingredients correct when you're guessing, but also things like ordering each other different wines, different beers, and just saying, what do you taste? Do you like this? Um, something my husband, I I think in my brain that I don't like Prosecco, but he'll sometimes order it for me and be like, do you like this? I'm like, oh, that's pretty good. And it'll be a Prosecco. So I guess I'm a snob, but uh Um, I think, uh, yeah, I think just testing yourself and seeing what do you taste when you don't know what's in the glass is 
first of all, I think pretty fun, but maybe I'm a geek about it. And also a way to just stretch your brain and you can kind of feel, I'm sure you've done this before when you've been blind tasting for a while, it is like mentally a little bit exhausting. It's really stretching totally your brain and creating, yeah, creating new connections and things like that. Um, and the reason I included a chapter on judging in the book isn't necessarily to be like, everyone should be a judge. I, I wanted people to understand how different all these competitions are. We're pretty lucky in beer that a lot of things are kind of based on that BJCP score sheet. And I think a lot of things are real. The judging is really clear about what the criteria are, but when you get into things like wine and spirits, sometimes the, the judging is just like, how much do you like this? Some of the wine competitions like actually base it on the bottle as well. Like what do you think the label looks like? And so when you see all these gold medals as a consumer, they're n- not all gold medals or awards I feel like are equal. And I think it's important for people to realize what judging can be. It can just be a couple professionals deciding what they like other ones that can be really important, the marketing, the branding, other ones that can be just flavor and they have a really great score sheet, like something you get at GABF or, um, yeah. Yeah. And that's, I struggle with that as when I put out reviews or yeah, I have to know myself well enough, right? There are certain Mm -hmm. beer styles that I know that I don't prefer or that I wouldn't buy regularly but then i have to sort of put that aside i not sort of i have to put that aside um when i'm at a judging table or when i'm doing stuff to um say okay i have to judge it on the merits of what this is um Mm -hmm. but but certainly i think you know i wonder how much the critical aspect that exists um is fair to drinkers overall Mm -hmm. or you know folks who are out there because it is personal taste right i mean there are some people who really like malort you know there's some people who really like you know big bold stinky cheeses when other other people don't and it's 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 personal preference Mm -hmm. um and i i think that this sort of just kind of goes back to you know knowing yourself and 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 trusting yourself um and the confidence that comes with and it's it's yeah. interesting in the beer world, the way that we judge things like, are they judged to style? Um, so, you know, something like Anchor Steam was like, if, the, if this is a steam beer, does it taste like Anchor Steam? Now that um, archetype is not even going to be around to taste and things like that. And I think cheese is actually similar the way that they judge. Like, is this made to the correct style to commercial examples? But a lot of other things... They don't when they're judging things like wines and um, sakes as well. It's it's not that way, and I think we put a lot on our consumers. Our consumers don't necessarily know like Cezanne Dupont is the um, gold standard, quintessential. The yeah, the yeah. yeah, the quintessential Cezanne. And so, wh- why are we kind of judging it to these like commercial examples? I think it's a it's just a different way. The industries are very different, you know. Instead, working with judges and getting to watch people judge. Um, it's very different than beer. And I obviously came up through beer. So I've always kind of thought, oh, does this taste right to style? Does this follow these guidelines? And um, I'm not sure that that's always doing the most service to your point to our consumers. Um, So, you know, you can win at GABF because you have like the best match triple to a real belt, like to a triple from Belgium. But like, is that doing the the service to our consumers? I don't know. Um, Especially now that so much of beer, like you said, is getting away from those archetypal styles that 
you know, those are all kind of floating out there on their own without a lot to be judged against um, or yeah, reviewed or rated against. So it's just got to think about criteria when we're trying to give things scores and tell people about them. And are we communicating oh, yeah. with our consumers the best way? Who do you think's having the most fun when it comes to judging? What, what category? <laughs> I, I, I don't have, I don't have fun. Competitions I, are so yeah. fun. Um, oh, you mean what category of beer? No, 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 no. I just, oh. I mean, cause I, I don't necessarily enjoy judging at beer competitions. Like it's fun, but it's a mm-hmm. lot of work. Um, and it, I always feel just mentally exhausted afterwards. And I'm wondering if there are folks who just seem to have a lot of fun while they're doing, I feel it. like, I feel like cheese actually, you know, who I feel like, uh, the tea people, they, they're tea heads they are super they're always having fun they are like so amazed by they're very close to the raw ingredient of their medium so they are like so amazed by they'll always be talking about like oh my gosh the trees this year were so lucky they gave us so many great things like they're very enthusiastic I think they're also a little bit caffeinated which helps (laughs) um but I feel like every single tea judge I talk to having an absolute blast cannot like say enough good things. Um, and cheese is up there too, but I've only been to the fun cheese competitions, like a international cheesemonger and things like that. So I don't know a long day of eating cheese could definitely be rough, Uh, (laughs) but yeah, tea, get into judging tea and you'll, you'll have a blast. Okay. I'm, 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 I'm here for it. Uh, one of the things about judging or or tasting, and you get into this in the book that I'm I, I was I was really glad to see just so much um, dedicated to because we talk about you know appearance or we'll talk about aroma we'll talk about flavor um, mouthfeel is mm-hmm. one of those ones that gets not overlooked but um, I don't think discussed as much mm-hmm. and ha- how do you see that or or what is the importance of mouthfeel? when it comes to tasting anything. Yeah. I think we don't give our, our mouths enough credit. They are incredibly sensitive piece of machinery. Basically they, we can feel the grit of something that is a 10th of the size of a grain of sand. So we're saying things you could never see with the bare eye. Um, Our mouth is really able to pick out and sense. And so I think people who don't like the word mouthfeel, you know, they want to say consistency. They want to say texture, when you're looking at two glasses of beer that could have very different mouthfeels, their consistency to the naked eye will look similar when you're swirling them. They will look, you know, like viscous liquid. They are not going to um, look too different, but our mouth is so sensitive to just like that little bit more weight on your palate, um, that little fine grit and things like artisan chocolate um, that taking a moment to really think about how does this feel in my mouth and how does it compare to other things, uh, makes a huge difference. And one I think is really fun to focus on is um, carbonation. There's not a ton. The science is not like completely definitive about why some things have those big, rough soda pop bubbles while other things have those really fine, um, you know, that mineral water style, like prickle of bubble, even if they're carbonated to the same level. And so I think tasting different carbonations is really from wine to beer to even your sparkling waters. It's really fun. And we got to give our mouth some credit for how in tune it is to those slight differences in sensation. I dig that. Um, I do. I, I, it's, it's just, it's something that I don't know. It just doesn't always get the thought um, that it deserves. Definitely. And I mean, yeah, doing things like, 
chocolate tastings and just the way that a more commercially made chocolate melts and feels in your mouth and how quickly it disappears from your palate as well compared to those really special bean to bar single origin chocolates. Um, it's, it's a huge difference and you don't really sit there and think about it all too often unless you read my book. <laughs> Shameless. Although that's why you're here. So um, of course everybody should be going and buying the book, but um, how important is flavor progression? If you're out, you know, at a restaurant, if you're, uh, you know, even out just at a backyard barbecue cookout, um, should you be thinking about lighter foods and drinks earlier in the day before you get to the heavier as opposed to vice versa? If you want to make the most out of it is, is mapping out flavor for food and drink. Is that important? Um, I think, you know, it's a great idea, especially if you're going to eat something really spicy or really bitter, that's kind of going to blow your palate out. Like maybe not, don't do that first, but I do think we put a little bit too much weight on those things. Um, we're very capable of, you know, having a, an appetizer that's a little bit heavier and then having something lighter after having a few drinks of water in between. I don't think it's going to ruin anyone's meal at all. I think um, we kind of baby people, especially when we talk about pairing as well. I talk about that. I don't think there are many perfect pairings out there. Um, and same with this progression idea. People are able to handle things and understand what is supposed to be light, what is supposed to be heavy. And I really don't think it ruins your palate too much. Um, yeah. A few drinks of water, you know, the most neutral sense is the sense of yourself. So if you're sitting there with yourself, you're automatically kind of resetting your nose between courses. And I, I really don't think it's too big of a deal if you have an idea for a dinner party and you want to serve something a little heavier first and then move into lighter things, I think. Um yeah, it's not uh, it's not that deep. And I think we're starting to see that with restaurants too, more like letting people kind of choose their own um, progression by doing things like small plates and stuff like that. And it's not so appetizers and these super tiny light things and then going heavier. Um, and yeah, same with pairing. Yeah. Two good things are usually going to taste pretty good together. You can always, you know, maybe have a little bit of a slighter, better interaction, but generally you're not going to run into too much trouble. That's it, it's nice that we're not being as precious about that um, as maybe we were in the past. And I, you know, I'm speaking for my, you know, myself and for other folks as well, but um, it's nice to see that. All right. So if there are folks who are curious, um, they want to make the most out of what they are tasting what is, but maybe don't want to you know, become a, a professional taster um, or a certified taster um, or even go through Cicerone or, or anything like that. Um, but they're curious and they're going to buy the book, obviously. Uh, <laughs> what is the challenge you would like to put to folks out there to, to help them start to achieve that goal? Oh, the challenge. That's good. Um. A, a challenge I like. I like that idea. I think maybe just taking a day on the weekends and going out of your way at the beginning of you, anything you eat or drink and at the end and just saying, what do I think this flavor is going to be? How does this flavor compare to similar flavors I've had throughout my life? And trying to create like little moments, almost teeny tiny meditations of like, yeah, what what am I smelling? What am I tasting? How does it relate to 
my life and my environments uh, at the beginning and end of everything that you eat. I, I talk about it. It's at the like conclusion part of the book. So I don't know if everyone actually reads it, but um, <laughs> I, I vacation a lot up in Vermont and there's a very specific Vermont forest scent, but I never realized it until I went to Portland to do research for the book. And I was in their forest and I was like, whoa, this forest smells completely different than like Vermont has like a little bit of sourness, I think because of all the birch trees. Um, but yeah, and I, I'm like, this is like just an experience and like kind of a grounding environmental sensation I would just totally miss out on if I wasn't so, you know, thinking about the things I smell all the time. And I think doing those little mini meditations, it might seem like a chore for your first day of doing it, but then it, it kind of becomes fun and brings up all these memories and can bring up things to talk about in conversation. So that's, a, I've never thought of a challenge before, but I, I would issue that as a challenge. Okay. Well, challenge accepted. <laughs> I've been asking folks on the show for 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 quite some time now the green door question and the premises on the the TV show The Good Place in the final season they introduce this concept of the green door where the characters can walk through it and be anywhere um, doing whatever they want to do and so if we had a green door on our plane of existence and this conversation ended and you could walk through it and be at any pub or any brewery anywhere in the world. Where would you want to go? Who would you want to be with? And what would you like to be drinking? Oh my gosh. Great question. When you were explaining the premise, I was like, I definitely am going to Bruges, but what exact bar would I want to be in? Um, good question. I I never know how to pronounce this bar. So I'm going, you know, do you know Daisy's bar in Bruges? It's like to, to beers, Brutege or something. I'm too American. <laughs> I, I, I do. And I'm not going to be able to. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would definitely want to be there. I would probably want to be drinking or vol just because that's my first beer when I get to Belgium always. And honestly, I, I, I love going there and just like hanging out with locals. They're often very proud to tell you about their beer experience and they want to tell you about beer culture in Belgium. And even if you've heard it before, I just love chatting with them, um, hearing, hearing what's up with in Belgium, a a little, uh, a little reprieve from what's happening in America, I guess. Um, so I I would not pick any specific person. Just, I love the, I mean, that's, I go to bars and stuff by myself all the time because I just love the serendipity of who you're going to run into what you'll learn that day and usually they'll tell me something and I'll go follow their suggestion and see if I like it so that's it like I told you at the beginning Belgian Belgian beer fan through and through I love it the book is called how to taste a guide to discovering flavor and savoring life it's from Citadel Press it's available where all fine books are sold both in person and online Mandy, thanks for for taking the time and being on the show this week. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's always fun to talk taste. What was a flavor and taste experience that opened up new worlds for you? Tell me about it. You can email me. It's John Hall. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at allaboutbeer.com or tell me on Twitter at John underscore Hall. That's also how you can get in touch with questions, comments, and guest suggestions. A reminder, go visit allaboutbeer.com. There you can check out the podcast page, the merch page, and can read great new content as well as the archives going back to 1979. Don't forget, follow All About Beer on social media at All About Beer. And if you're interested in supporting journalism in the beer space, and we hope you are, please email us at info at allaboutbeer.com or go to patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. As promised, 
Caleb Schwecki of Yakima Valley Hops is back with me. The company is a sponsor of this episode, and we're thankful for that. And we're talking about newly released hops. Earlier, we learned about McKenzie. And now, Caleb, tell us about Australian Eclipse. So Eclipse is the newest variety coming out of Australia from Hop Products Australia. And it's my favorite hop coming out of Australia already. Uh, all the beers that I've tried with it have just been incredible. It's so bright and zesty and juicy. It's definitely citrus forward, uh, but more in like a tangerine or mandarin orange kind of thing not not like the pink citrus or even orange it's a, a lot sweeter and brighter so it's it makes amazing fruit forward ipas but then the nice thing about eclipse too is that it is backed by some uh some pine resin some oak character to it so it's not it's not one dimensionally citrusy it has some depth of character to it which is really nice and where do you see it fitting into beer styles? Ooh, I've had it in everything from dry hopped Pilsners. That one was incredible to the hazy things and New England IPAs. It's It's been put in a lot. Um, I've seen it used really well as like an accent hop. So toss it in maybe like 20 to 40% of your hop bill and it really shines. Uh, it doesn't need to be all your hop bill you know, to get that great character out of it, but you know, 20 to 20 to 40% and you can really get some amazing citrus out of it. It works well with, you know, other Australian hops for obvious reasons like yeah. big secret and galaxy, but it also works well with American hops, the citra mosaic, or even some of the newer experimentals, uh, like HBC 1019, which we've learned about on the show. Um, and if folks want to learn more about Australian Eclipse, HBC 1019, Mackenzie, HBC 1134, all of the cool things that you guys have going on, please go visit yakimavalleyhops.com and everything else that you all have is on that website as well. As always, thanks to Yakima Valley Hops for supporting All About Beer. And Caleb, thanks for sharing all of this great information with us. Thank you, John. Keep up the great work. Also, if you plan to be in Colorado in a few weeks for the Great American Beer Festival, you need to check out the Denver Rare Beer Tasting. It happens on September 22nd and brings together 64 of America's best craft breweries, all for a great cause, the Pints for Prostates campaign. The beer list is incredible, packed with rare, exotic, and vintage beers you won't find anywhere else. These are legendary beers that the breweries hold back just for the Denver Rare Beer Tasting. This is a bucket list event for both beer fans and for brewers. You can get a look at the beer list and find more information at pintsforprostates.org. All-inclusive tickets are $200 and include unlimited beer samples, a great buffet lunch, t-shirt, tasting glass, and a program. Money raised goes to the fight against prostate cancer, including a free health screening before the event. It's a simple blood test that checks for common health issues that might just save your life. That's the Denver Rare Beer Tasting, drinking beer and saving lives. Don't forget, All About Beer has a podcast channel now. Search and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Steal This Beer still has new episodes every Monday, and the BYO Nano podcast comes out on the 15th of every month. As for this show, Nate Schweber does the music, Jeff Quinn designed our logo, and I'm John Hall. New episodes release every Wednesday, and that's when I'm going to be back again to drink beer and to think beer.